Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Coming up today, Werner West End. As the RB Leipzig star heads to West London, we ask, will Timo do better than Tamo? And what will be the knock-on effect on his new Chelsea teammates? Also, Bayer Bayern and what happened in the Bundesliga? A big look ahead to Thursday's restart in La Liga, the Seville derby. And our Premier League retro review reaches 2000-2001. Was it not only the shortest title race ever, but also a season so bad it almost killed the Premier League? We'll be asking that and more in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. a player, he scored a goal, and everybody cheered the goal. Another time, a player got fouled, and everybody booed very loud of a football. Yeah, hello everybody. George Dawes there, of course, with that match report. And on board today for you, we have Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Hi, Duncan. In on a Sunday, a special occasion. Mmm, the Sabbath. Matt Davis-Adams is here with us. Always special to have you along, Matt. Always special to be here. Great. And also, Daniel Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi, James. Grand. Hey, lots of big signs that football is almost back. And one of the chief ones, Daniel, is your magnificent spreadsheet. How long did that take you? It took a lot longer to make than it did for someone else to go in and make it semi-readable. But yeah, I, I had a lot of people say, well, you can get apps for this, you know, and it's like, well... Yeah, but I spend most of the time on a laptop and I want one that has got exactly what I want, not what anyone else wants. Yeah, people. Just in case you haven't seen Daniel's spreadsheet, it's, um, well, it's a large spreadsheet, but it's got, crucially, the days of the week and all the games that are on on those days and other sports as well. As you say, somebody's gone in and put logos at the top, but the the real work was done by you. It's brilliant. Uh, Oh, another sign that football's almost back. Transfer talk. It's happening again. And of course, the big news that's dominated this sector of late, Chelsea's swoop for Timo Werner. Are you excited, Matt? Very excited. Yeah, not not quite done yet, but certainly looks as though um, there's just some T's to be crossed and I's to be dotted. Right. Well, his name features both of those, so crucial that they get <laughs> those right. Uh, the move, of course, from RB Leipzig to Chelsea uh, when it happens. Bit of a surprise, as most people, including Timo himself, apparently, thought he was heading to Liverpool. We've got our thoughts on how Chelsea are going to look with him very, very shortly. But first, a quick comment from Raphael Honigstein about how this deal has come about. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Chelsea have been very opportunistic and very, very quick to use some of the financial opportunities and power that they still had because of the... um, ban and the money that was being saved up effectively they couldn't get a deal done in january but they basically had two windows worth of money available for strengthening i think they were one of the very few clubs in elite football who were in a position to just push a button effectively and said you know what here's your 60 or 55 million euros to leipzig Um, it's a release clause so they don't have to negotiate anything they can just put forward the money, I don't think it's done yet, but all the indications are that uh, there is an agreement with um, Werner in place. And of course, if they have found an agreement with the player, 
then triggering the release clause is really just a formality at this stage. Um, for Liverpool, I think that the fact that there is no AFCON in, uh, in all likelihood and therefore maybe not quite the same need to replenish the front three or make up for the absence of Mane and Salah meant that Werner was just less of a priority uh, as the fourth guy, even at uh, a res relatively reasonable £50 million. There were thereabouts. I think Liverpool were not in a position to sanction that kind of outlay, certainly not now. And I think the fact that the release clause is only open or active until uh, mid the mid uh, mid June meant that uh, Chelsea being able to do it without a chain, as it were, um, cash buyers, correct, made it uh, made it much more easy for them to conclude the deal. Raphael Honigstein. Okay, Matt. So, how big a signing do you think this is for Chelsea? Is this a game changer in terms of title credentials? It is potentially, and, and not just because they've signed one of the most promising strikers in Europe of this season, but they've, that they've been in the position to get him. Um, whether you say it's ahead of Liverpool or, or Liverpool um, pulled out of the deal, it's, it's impressive that Chelsea have been able to do that at a time where they are you know, in the top four, but only just about and, and with an inexperienced manager. And it's, um, it's interesting that, as with Hakim Ziyech, we're told that Frank Lampard played a big part in, in the discussions to, to convince Werner um, to come in. And, and part of that being, look, I'm going to be here for a few years and I want you to play for me, which is not something that previous Chelsea managers have been able to say with much confidence. And obviously we'll see um, if, if history proves that to be to be accurate or not. But it's, it's big for Chelsea supporters to be able to get Ziyech and Werner uh, within a couple of months of each other and, you know, all... all Rumours seem to point to the fact that Ben Chilwell will be next, which would be another relatively stellar signing. And, and the aim is in the next three years to get Chelsea back to challenging four Premier League titles rather than just getting into the top four. Um, where he plays, as, as Rafa alluded to, is going to be interesting. But yeah, it's, it's really positive news for Chelsea. Daniel, what do you think? Does this make Chelsea bona fide contenders? I think it probably should do. Um, there's a heck of a gap to make up to Liverpool, but I think they'll look at Manchester City's performance this season and think that given this has been Lampard's first season, they will expect better next season. I think it's really interesting that, that Lampard was kind of appointed on this mandate of bringing through academy players like Tammy Abraham, and yet when you get a chance to sign, as Matt says, one of the informed strikers in in European football, you kind of have to take it. Whether that reduces Lampard's mandate or increases it is probably open to debate. But I, I think it probably will make Tammy Abraham worried because it's not as if they don't have options out wide. Ziyech can play pretty much anywhere. Christian Pulisic, obviously the only side who only arrived last summer. Um, it looks like Pedro and or William will leave, but that still leaves a heck of a lot of options and, and actually a pretty brilliant front four when you think of Mason Mount servicing them and the three central midfielders they have behind. There's, there's certainly less excuse for Lampard. It's brave if, if, as we're told, he was prominent in discussions to get these players. It's brave of him because it certainly gives him far fewer excuses than he might have had at the start of this season. I've enjoyed uh, a lot of people on Twitter have been putting together little lists of Chelsea's attacking 
talent and they've said look at the young players Chelsea have got and they've had to kind of gloss over the fact that Ziyech is 27 there's like 21 22 and then a bit of a jump to 27 but um my colleagues in Germany put together quite an interesting little table which was uh xg basically created by players dribbling past opponents so basically the kind of xg you create yourself uh and Timo Werner's like way ahead of any other player in Europe and I think it's quite key for Chelsea because there are a lot of games so far this season where you know they really sort of struggle to break teams down occasionally particularly away from home um, and I think he is a player that can kind of create something from nothing which is a, a big ad. Just to say on, on Tammy Abraham as well part of the narrative has been well what does this mean for him Chelsea and Abraham have been in a standoff over a new contract for pretty much the entirety of this season whereas Hudson-Odoi and Tamori and some of the other academy graduates who've come through have signed new deals during the course of this season. Uh, Abraham has been holding out. His deal expires in the summer of 2022. So to an extent, it's Chelsea looking to protect themselves against him deciding that he doesn't want to stay anyway. So there's, there's kind of two sides to that, which maybe hasn't been as widely reported. Being brutal, which Premier League managers have to be, I think we can probably all agree that on current form, Timo Werner is a better striker than Tammy Abraham. He's also only 18 months older than Abraham. So you have to make tough decisions. And if the reality is you can get a striker who's better than your current number nine, Lampard isn't going to just sing from this same hymn sheet that I'm going to play the kids, whatever. If that's the difference between Chelsea finishing second, third or fourth or fifth, uh, he has to go with what he knows. Daniel, what about Liverpool? And their change of attack. Where does this leave them? I think they're in a really interesting position because by all accounts, one of the reasons that Werner changed his mind is that Klopp couldn't guarantee him a starting position every week. But if you look at the age of their strikers in terms of comparisons with other clubs, you know, Manchester United with Marshall and Rashford, Chelsea with what they have now, they are getting on a bit in, you know, in Premier League terms. They're not over the hill by any means, but it will be really interesting to see how that dynamic changes when it does change because there isn't a more settled front three in European football at the moment and when that change has to come it'll be really interesting to see which one is is the four guy of those three. Well Timo Werner was in action of course for his current side RB Leipzig this weekend. Let's get a quick word on events in the Bundesliga across the uh, bulk of the uh, action was on Saturday where the big winners were a team called Bayern Munich. We've hardly seen him have we in terms of having Opportunities created, although there was an opportunity there for Gnabry to play him in. Here is Lewandowski, and he was given the big shout into the back of the net, and I couldn't have called it any better. Yep, Bayern Munich were taking on Bayer Leverkusen in Leverkusen. Leverkusen took the lead. Bayern then woke up and messed Bayer up a treat. Ended up 4-2. Robert Lewandowski taking his tally to 30 Bundesliga goals, 44 in all competitions. He's 31 years of age. Muller. Thomas Muller getting two more assists. That's now 20 for the season. We also saw, in a late consolation goal for Leverkusen, the Bundesliga's youngest ever goal scorer, 17-year-old Florian Wirtz. Scoring your first goal at 17 against Bayern Munich, no less. Crazy. Yeah, lovely composed finish as well. He, he, I didn't realise quite how young he was until uh, until Sunday when I read the report. He doesn't look 17, I think it's fair to say. Mm, indeed not. Bayern, though... 90 goals they've scored now in their 30 Bundesliga games this season. Remember Duncan City's 108-goal record in the Premier League, which we all felt was ridiculous. That's 2.82 goals a game. Clearly 90 in 30s, even better than that. And that is even factoring in the first couple of months of the season when they were having their worst start to a campaign in, in decades. If you restricted just flicks games, 
you're probably about to, to say this year. It's 20 games and 65 goals. That's three and a quarter goals a game since he took over. It's good, isn't it? They, um, they're averaging more goals by themselves than uh, the average games in the other big European leagues in, in total. So they're pretty good going forward. 90 after 30 is a, is a Bundesliga record. Obviously, you mentioned Muller getting to 20 assists. That equals the Bundesliga record for the era we have assist data. Um, it's one more than Mark Overmars got in his entire Premier League career. So, you know, I think normally when Bayern do this, everyone's a bit like, oh, but in a world that's a bit tumultuous, there's something quite comforting about Bayern Munich still being this sort of relentless. I'm getting quite a lot of comfort from it. Nice. The, the other thing we should say in relation to other football is that given the timing of their season and the rest they'll presumably have before the Champions League, um, they must consider themselves, well, favourites, I'd have thought, to win the competition. Is it a benefit to have a month off before the uh, Champions League returns or I think, is it actually going to mean they're not going to have the same match rhythm that perhaps some of the other contenders will have? I think the way they have come back and steamrolled through opponents suggests that they are pretty capable to pick up where they left off and we should also remember that they did win the away leg against Chelsea so comfortably that, that they kind of have a uh, a sort of semi-friendly second leg to, to bed themselves in as well. Very true. Well, we'll talk more about the Champions League in a second, but just one or two other things from the Bundesliga. It was a good weekend for Dortmund because they won narrowly, uh, ending Hertha Berlin's unbeaten streak. And the teams around them in the race for top four places, Leverkusen, Mönchengladbach and RB Leipzig, all dropped points. Leipzig drawing at home to bottom club Paderborn. Team of Werner got an assist in that game. A cracking goal from John Joe Kenny, meanwhile, on loan at Schalke from Everton, ended their losing streak. They'd uh, had four straight defeats, but against uh, Union Berlin, uh, they finished 1-1. A little bit lucky to do so, but it was a great goal from from Kenny. Down at the bottom, dangerous Mainz <laughs> got a 2-0 win at Frankfurt, which has left them a little bit clearer of the bottom three. Werder Bremen have lost two straight games and now looking increasingly likely to be ending their 39-year stay in the Bundesliga. Huh. Now, Champions League, once again, reports that the final games are going to be held in Portugal. German newspaper Bild confirming these stories that uh, it's going to be Portugal and more specifically Lisbon that's going to be the venue for a Champions League final eight tournament. Uh, they have both the Estadio da Luz and the José Alvalade, and of course they don't have any Portuguese sides in there, so they're definitely going to be neutral venues. Uh, the plan is at present... It's going to be a big meeting on the 17th to have basically the second legs of the last 16s that still need to be played at the respective grounds of those clubs and then get everybody together in Lisbon to play one-off quarterfinals, one-off semifinals and a one-off final. Intriguingly, apparently, Juventus president Andrea Agnelli suggested that they just uh, scrap the first legs of the last 16 and restart from there. Juve were losing 1-0 of course in the first leg of their last 16 but anyway there you go what do you think I'm getting quite excited about this last day in Lisbon that, that, that sounds quite like fun you know we've got the FA Cup at the start of August there's all these little kind of segments of football um, that, that it's going to be different but I think as each week goes past people get used to the new normal and already games without fans in the stadium don't feel as odd as they did a couple of weeks ago so yeah a, a kind of one-off Champions League end like that is going to be at least it mixes it up you know to be fair not having fans in the stadium is the old normal uh, Duncan the, the new normal is having zoom screens with fans 
basically communicating their enthusiasm from at home, as featuring in uh, Portugal this week, uh, with the Liga Nosh getting back underway. We talked about Porto losing. Benfica only drew two, nil-nil. Uh, sorry, with Tondela, so they and Porto are level on sixty points with nine games to go. But after goals in. Uh, Portuguese games this weekend, uh, they were cutting away to Zoom screens with fans celebrating there in the stadium. Did you see this at all, Matt, Daniel? Yeah, not a fan of it, to, to be honest. My concern is that it'll encourage Sky to bring back Fanzone. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why I'm kind of anti it. But I absolutely love the fake crowd noise. I am a big, mm. big fan of that. I thought it really, really enhanced it as, a, as something for the TV viewer. Uh, it made it... Make a lot more sense, feel a lot more legitimate, not like you're just watching a pre-season friendly or a training session. So I will definitely be choosing that option when the um, when the Premier League returns in a couple of weeks. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I think the, the natural instinct, although I actually thought that the crowd noise thing would be a good idea, I think our natural instinct on these sort of things is to think, oh, it's really weird, it's really different. But as Duncan says, the fact that everything is so different by default and by, you know, by inevitability now means that I think it gives a, an added scope for these things to be tried. And I agree. I think it was excellent. Um, it is only an armchair sport for the next X number of months. So we might as well try and perfect that experience as much as we can. The Bundesliga is back. And as Dortmund hoped to close the gap on title rivals Bayern, Paddy Power paid a visit to star striker Erling Haaland's family home to see where the boy wonder came from. It's alive! It's alive! <laughs> oh, uh, uh, hello, come in. <laughs> we all wondered what they'd been feeding him. And this weekend, Paddy Power will be getting on board with an invention of our own, the Money Back Special. See online for our latest Bundesliga Money Back Specials. Paddy Power. Terms and conditions apply. 18plusbegumblerware.org You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Now, looking through Daniel's spreadsheet, I see that there's Pokal action midweek. German Cup, Bayern Munich taking on Eintracht Frankfurt, while uh, Bayer Leverkusen take on Saarbrücken, who are from the 4th Division. On Thursday then, Spain will be getting things underway with the Seville derby, which is going to be intriguing, you know, trying to get their football fans used to empty stadiums, but starting off with probably the most colourful fixture usually of all, a Sevilla against uh, Real Betis. We'll, we'll talk more about that very shortly, but one thing that's not on Daniel's spreadsheet is, of course, WSL, because, Matt, they've just shut the league up. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they've gone for the points per game thing, which um, which we're going to be seeing more of um, across various leagues, I think. And, and despite the fact that they were second when the season finished, it means that Chelsea have been awarded the title. They did have a game in hand on Manchester City when the uh, the unexpected pause happened it's not it's not ideal obviously but it, points per game it, it finishes that Chelsea would have got 2.6 points per game as opposed to Man City's 2.5 but the other thing to consider is that it was a, a three-way title race and a, a really close one at that one of the one of the best seasons ever in the WSL it was shaping up to be um, but Chelsea beat Arsenal who were third home and away and they took four points from Manchester City too and I think that sort of adds some weight to the fact that that they have been uh, crowned champions using this points per game system um, quite gracious in victory as as Manchester City and Arsenal have been in, in getting pipped to the title in this way um, Chelsea the only team who, who didn't lose a game in the WSL all season too um, but Liverpool they go down and, and not happy about it particularly their manager Vicky Jackson who pointing out they still had eight games to play but bearing in mind they'd only won once all season 
And it's kind of chickens coming home to roost for them. I think their their women's team is woefully underfunded, and uh, this is the result of that. And and that's been borne out in in the last few days with players who've left the club at the end of their contracts, putting various statements on social media and, and through the media, basically saying this has been coming because there's no investment in the team. You should probably point out that um, Aston Villa have been promoted using points per game in the Championship. They uh, they were declared as champions, so they'll be replacing Liverpool in the WSL next season, which they're hoping to kick off in September. And there is talk that they might fold in the remainder of this season's FA Cup into the start of next season too, which is a kind of an interesting idea. Not sure if that'll actually come to pass, but one way of getting that competition finished. OK, well, Thursday night, La Liga restarts and it is severe against Real Betis, which is going to be interesting with an empty Sanchez Pijuan. To find out how big this game is going to be, how weird it's going to be, let's speak to the man who wrote The Frying Pan of Spain, the definitive guy to the Derby Sevillano, Colin Miller. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, James. Not at all, not at all. It's a huge game coming up on Thursday, and I'm sure you're excited, but how weird do you think it's going to be? Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be a bit strange because the Seville Derby, it's it's the best game in Spain precisely because of the fact that it is a spectacle. You know, when you think of the noise and the colour and the atmosphere, obviously, which is driven by the fans, and, you know, not having any fans at it will have a profound impact on the game itself. More so than anywhere else, because the energy that the supporters transmit to the pitch, it's usually very evident in these games. And I think La Liga is sort of marketing this in the sense that it knows that this game could potentially be the biggest watch to the derby of all time, due to the nature of it, due to the fact that there's been no football for three months. And they're trying to come up with a lot of ways to sort of combat this. And the president, Javier Tabas, has been coming out and saying, you know, look, we're going to be adding this pre-recorded atmosphere that we've seen trialed in the Bundesliga already. And I'm not sure if I'm personally sold on that yet or not, but I think the option will be there for TV viewers. And, and he's also saying about putting in virtual images of fans in the stands um, and trying to find all these ways of increasing fan involvement. And whether or not those are a, a success or not remains to be seen. But I think that despite the lack of fans, the return of the league in itself must be seen as a real triumph for La Liga and for Tabas. Because when you think of Spain and how very, very hard. It was hit by this awful virus, um, even in comparison to other nations. The Bundesliga came back last month, but Spain was in a much worse position in Germany. And I must admit that the turnaround time and the clarity and the structure of the roadmap that's been laid out for for return of football in Spain has been very impressive. And it's it's won over a lot of people who were who were sceptical that it could come back this early, and I'd include myself in that. So let's hope that it's that it lives up to, to its expectations and and that the league can find itself a way to, to combat the absence of the fans. Mm. Not the first time this game's been played, at least partially behind closed doors. In 2007, they had just over half an hour of a Seville derby played in, in an empty stadium after Wendy Ramos got knocked out by a bottle thrown by... Was it Sevilla fans that time? No, it must have been the Real Betis fans. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was, a, it was at the time about 15 years ago whenever there was a particularly, particularly bad blood between the two clubs and the sets of fans. And thankfully, that situation has calmed down significantly since then. But yeah, again, it's, it's, it's one of those... It's going to be one of these occasions that will probably never be forgotten. It's going to be one that hopefully is never repeated um, in the sense that we get fans back in the stadiums as soon as possible. Absolutely. So beyond the absence of fans, then what's riding on, on this one for the two teams? 
Well, again, the both the teams are in very different positions at the minute in the table. And I'll sort of start with Sevilla because Sevilla are a bit of a strange club in the sense that they've had a very similar season for about four years in a row now. You know, every summer they have this mass turnover of players and turnover of coaching staff. They usually start really strongly. They're right in the mix up until the, ha- the halfway point of the season. And then the form kind of tails off a little bit. And yet they're third in the table at the minute, but there's only two points down to Atletico Madrid who are in sixth. So all these positions are going to be very definitive in terms of Champions League, Europa League, and and that's huge in terms of forming budgets and whatever else for next season. So this run of games coming up is crucial for all these clubs. And Julian Lopetegui, the, the coach, he, he's actually a guy who's under pressure. And you think that might be a bit strange, the fact that they're so high in the league. They're still in the Europa League too, but... There's a real distrust, um, I think, at the club, partly due to the manner in which Lopetegui left Spain on the eve of the World Cup two years ago. And obviously the fact that he's coming from Real Madrid as well. And Sevilla and Real Madrid have never particularly had the best relations, as it were. And there's also been a, there's been a couple of concerns in terms of the, the style of play that he has and, and his persistence with Luke de Jong as a striker who hasn't had the best of seasons. But yeah, this, this, this run of games coming up is crucial. And they've got players like uh, Diego Carlos, the big Brazilian central defender, who I think has been linked, linked to Liverpool and Real Madrid. And midfielder Lucas Ocampos as well has been really great this season. And and I think it, it, it's from that, those sort of players could, could potentially define this game. Um, whereas Betis, they're in a bit of a different place. Uh, they beat Real Madrid, and deservedly so, in their last match in La Liga. But they'd only won 1-10 in 10 before that. And again, their coach Ruby, he's man under pressure. You know, not, not a great run of results. They're 13th in the table. They should be much higher. But I think the main the main flaw of Betis is that they're very defensively fragile. But going forwards, they have the likes of Nabil Fakir, they have Joaquin, Sergio Canales, Loren Moron. So they're usually very good value for entertainment. And I think that's that that's what that's what will be defining this game. I think I think it's, they're usually very good games to watch. You know, both teams like to to attack and, and and go for it. So hopefully hopefully it'll be a great a great occasion, even despite the absence of fans. All right. Spurs, I believe, are interested in uh, Loren Moron, no? Which would be a sub-editor's dream, now if Spurs get a Moron in their team. <laughs> no, absolutely. He's, he's actually, he's a, he's a very, he's a bit of a strange striker. Um, he, he usually tends to turn up in these big games. He scored in the Seville Derby earlier in the season. His goal numbers are probably slightly uh, unrepresentative. He, he doesn't, he doesn't have a whole lot outside of the box, which, which is probably a bit of a concern. And he signed a new contract at Betis just last week. So I think his release clause is about 50 million euros or so. That's, that's what, that's the figure that's been reported. And uh, whether or not those, those sorts of sums of, mo- of money are available in this market is another matter. But yeah, there's plenty of players in this who've been linked to Premier League clubs. And yeah, there's plenty to look out for. Colin Miller, author of The Frying Pan of Spain. Oh, we'll have a full preview uh, of the Liga season on Thursday, crammed in all amongst all the other good things that will be in our next to- Totally Football show. Next up in this edition, though, we're going to go so retro. Who is world football's next phenomenon? You might have already seen him play for that random Europa League side you were watching at the start of the season. Or he might be an academy graduate, just breaking into the first-team squad of one of the Premier League's top teams. Whoever he is, you can bet on his success with the Football Stock Market Football Index. Use what you know about the beautiful game and build a portfolio of the players you think will rise in value. Win dividends when your players perform out on the pitch or right here in the media. 
Sign up to Football Index today using the code TFS20 for our special seven-day £500 money-back guarantee and download the Football Index app on Apple and Android. That code again, TFS20. Terms and conditions apply and are available at trade.footballindex.co.uk slash money-back guarantee. It's 18 plus only. Please trade responsibly and be gambleaware.org. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Premier League 2000-2001. Drama, excitement and the exact same top two we'd had for the previous two seasons. Stay with us though for a tale that will surprise and entertain and feature Wickham Wanderers. A tale of Liverpool winning a treble. Not that treble, but still... A tale of tractor boys ploughing up the Premier League. A tale that starts with the champions, Man United. Man United, they barely had a title race this time around. And what there was ended in February like this. And it's York taking it from Stefanovs. Dwight York! Sheringham. For Solskjaer. For Sheringham! Manchester United 6. Arsenal 1. 6-1 indeed. That was the game that killed off Arsenal. The title was Man United's by April the 14th, the earliest it's ever happened. And Duncan, we thought that might change this season, but quite the opposite. Well, in terms of dates, Liverpool were going to beat it and now it's going to be the latest title to win. Um, But in terms of games remaining, Liverpool should still get the record. United had five left at that point. Um, And they pretty much gave up after that as well. They lost their last three. Um, And in the first game after sealing the title it was the Manchester derby the famous one where Roy Keane uh, decided to get revenge against Alfinger Haaland and I think that was obviously a very famous incident but it's quite instructive of how United were feeling I think at that point that they were you know the Premier League title which once would have been this huge prize for them they were kind of fed up of winning and people forget that that Man City game came four days after they lost Bayern in the Champions League and Keane had come out he had you know had a go at his teammates um, you know it looked like United were a long way away from kind of winning the Champions League again and I think all that frustration uh, was kind of put through Alfinger Haaland's knee uh, during the game. Yeah it's, it seems odd that um, Alex Ferguson this this winner who would never run out of appetite, and I'm sure he delighted in winning the title, however easy and however quickly and early he could. But there was a real sense that the Premier League was getting a little bit boring by the domination of of one club, and it seems remarkable looking back now in hindsight that the United then that summer bought Ruvan Nistro, who they'd obviously been chasing for a while, and Juan Sebastian Veron, and and somehow got worse, uh, or at least allowed a challenger to to usurp them. But yeah, I, I think Duncan's absolutely right. It just it felt monotonous at the time because the title, although it was won on April the 14th, was effectively won in November. And by that point, United were coasting. The other thing, I mean, Daniel just said there about, you know, they went out and bought Van Nistelrooy and uh, Veron in the summer. And I think this was very much a kind of last hurrah of the kind of treble team in a sense. You know, Skulls was brilliant that season, scored loads of long range goals, as was his one. David Beckham was brilliant, the fourth successive season where he'd had sort of 10 or more assists. But they, you know, they weren't good enough in Europe. And I think that Ferguson did need to rebuild the team. But you know, it was very much a kind of old-fashioned kind of season. It's the last season in the Premier League where every single player of the month was British or Irish. Um, and the player of the season was Teddy Sheringham, who was mm. about 67 at this point. 
He was 35. Other ages are available, yeah. He, um, but, you know, he scored some lovely goals, but if if Teddy Sheringham was winning Player of the Year, it's, it's not really kind of, you know, relevant of a, of a classic season, I'd say. Yeah, and that is illustrated by the fact that Sheringham, the double player of the year, leaves Manchester United that summer because they're not prepared to offer him any more than, than a 12-month contract and, and Spurs would give him double that, so he went there instead. People say, go with the flow, but you know what goes with the flow? Dead fish. The wit and wisdom of Roy Keane. Sterile, though the top two were behind them, there was a real duel for third place and the other Champions League spot, featuring Liverpool and Leeds United and Ipswich. The Tractor Boys had just come up and celebrated on their shoestring budget by bringing in Herman Reinerson from Wimbledon, whose last two Premier League stints at Palace and Wimbledon have both ended in relegation. Not at Ipswich, though. They finished fifth, one of the most successful promoted sides ever. Great ball to Clapham. Even better back to Stewart. Oh, he turns the defender sweetly. Round the goalkeeper and scores a magnificent goal at the cup end. Who's done better than them then? There's another provincial club who did quite well. Um, quite similar sort of size to Ipswich, but uh, more European Cups. All right. Marcus Stewart, 19 goals in the Premier League. He was the second highest goalscorer that year, ahead of your Henri's, your Owens and your Teddy Sheringham's. And all supervised by George Burley, who would win Manager of the Year as well. One of only two managers in the Premier League era to win Manager of the Year with a newly promoted club. The other being, Duncan? Uh, Pulis? Yes, it is Pulis. Good for you. There you go. Pulled that out. Ipswich, eh? Yeah, they were a a great side to watch because they were just incredibly tenacious. They had a plan which was to attack the first 10 or 15 minutes of each half with absolute gusto. And I think they scored a third of their goals in the first 10 minutes of halves. And then kind of sit back on what they had. And with, with Marcus Stewart being surprisingly brilliant weird thing is that they probably will be slightly disappointed in that they they took four points in the last three games including a defeat to Charlton and a draw on the last day with Derby and if they'd have got those five points extra five points they'd have finished second by Manchester United which is absolutely astonishing really um given the resources and given uh and given the fact that they'd only finished third in the championship the season before or division one and, and gone up via the playoffs it was a, a remarkable season not least because as we'll talk about subsequently, they, they went down the following season. Mm. Who was Marcus Stewart and what happened to him afterwards? He was uh, you know, a classic lower league striker who managed to maintain that form in the Premier League, which there hadn't been many of in the 90s, to be honest. Um, he scored that goal at Liverpool. But there was this debate that season about, you know, what, we saw it again with Jamie Vardy a couple of years ago, why are managers going and spending money on foreign strikers when there's all this talent in the in the lower leagues? Um, you know, I saw someone say, it makes me bitter that managers at the highest level neglect players in Division 1, which was the championship as it is now. But, you know, it's not that often that a player can come up and do it. We've had, you know, Ricky Lambert, a few others. It was just one of those seasons where the, everything went well for him and fair play. And it's not like it was a sustained period of success for him after this he scored seven goals in the other 47 Premier League games that he played so very much a one season wonder probably slightly unfortunate not to get an England cap I think given that there was a new manager in charge and England played 
a friendly that summer. And the strikers that were picked were, were sharing was picked at 35 when it was pretty clear he didn't really have a long-term future with England. Alan Smith was picked despite not scoring that often. And he also picked the three Liverpool forwards, which is Owen Fowler and Heskey. So I think he's probably slightly unfortunate not to have got a chance for England. Kevin Phillips obviously did slightly before him, having kind of had a similar season of promotion and then an incredible run of form. So I feel a little bit from there. Well, Liverpool forwards certainly were tearing it up that season, Daniel. 63 games Liverpool played across their various competitions and the team scoring 127 goals in what was one of the most fondly remembered Liverpool campaigns ever. The Cup treble, League Cup, FA Cup, UEFA Cup and the Arsene Wenger Cup for qualifying for a Champions League place. So a quadruple, really. It was a charming Liverpool side with Stevie G breaking through and breaking nets. Danny Murphy hitting double figures too. A car showroom and chopper loving Michael Owen on his way to a Ballon d'Or. And Emil Heskey scoring almost as many goals as Michael. Yeah, Heskey was particularly brilliant that season. Um, It was the only season he ever scored more than 10 goals in the Premier League. But if you watch back some of the highlights of his goals, A, he scores sort of three or four goal of the season contenders, just lashing the ball home. And there's one when he runs through uh, one-on-one, slots at home, and the commentator says, that's what you expect from Emil Heskey. So this kind of latter career where, you know, I think he unfairly got abuse for, for you know, not being a reliable finisher. That season, that wasn't the case. He was still relatively young. And um, I think that front three at Liverpool worked well because you could you could swap them in and out depending on the opponents and as soon as Phil Thompson took over the following season when Julio was ill and, and got rid of Robbie Fowler who they didn't get on um, that kind of uh, switchability fell away and you know Liverpool suffered. Yeah I think you know it's obviously a good season if you win any form of treble it, it, it definitely isn't the treble they would have wanted but I think they I do think they underperformed in the league they beat Manchester United home and away they beat Arsenal 4-0 at home, uh, but they lost seven away games and they just dropped sloppy points, which Manchester United didn't do. I, it's not necessarily what we expect from Gerard Houllier or have come to expect from him in his later career, but it almost feels like they just went too attacking in some games. I mean, there's a game where they lost 2-0 at, at Leicester and they started with Gerard, Barnby, McAllister, Heskey and Fowler. And I think it's just, they almost had too many options. I think Duncan's right about being able to switch players in and out. And obviously... Michael Owen, for example, didn't play in that game. Danny Murphy didn't start that game. But yeah, I just think there were almost too many options and it left them a bit unsure what team to pick or how to approach games. The, the one thing we should say is that they played 63 matches, but they can't use fatigue as, a, as an excuse because they won six out of the last seven in the league. So it wasn't that they tailed off. It was that they were pretty average early season. Yeah, I was just going to say that was what cost them because the end of the season was really impressive. You know, they needed to win at Charlton on the final day to, to beat Leeds to third. And, and, and as Dan says, they went on a brilliant winning run at the end of that season. And that last Premier League game of the season came after the finals that they'd already won. So to keep up that, that level of intensity for, for that long at that point of the season when you've been through so many draining games, you know, the FA Cup, two of those three finals went to, um, to extra time. So, yeah, very impressive. Well, they'd qualified by reaching third for the Champions League for the first time ever. So that was good. Danny, you're probably going to say they didn't beat anyone on their way to their cup treble either. Well, the Worthington Cup was straightforward enough. UEFA Cup, a bit less so. They were up against Spanish surprise side Alaves. It went two extra times, as you mentioned, Matt. And then the key thing really was Alaves getting two red cards in time added on and then a, a golden own goal, effectively, a, 
saw them land that European honour in the FA Cup, things were even tougher still, eh, Duncan? Yeah, well, they had to get past Wickham in the in the semis. Um, obviously, Wickham in the semis. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a funny cup run because it was ten games, which is pretty long for any FA Cup run, and it started ridiculously because Wickham played Harrow in the first round, and Barry Silkman, who had been a player in the eighties, was now an agent, demanded to play for Harrow Borough the last fifteen minutes. So he he basically came on with fifteen minutes to go, and he, I've never seen. I was at the game. I've never seen someone more out of their depth. He couldn't run. He was like a guy in his late forties trying to play against professionals, and it was just. And I remember a few people after that game going, "Well, that's the cup ruin for me this season. I'm not going to bother going to any more games." They turns out they did, and then there were loads of moments too. You know, we had to shovel snow off the pitch before we beat Wolves. Um, it was a fairly dodgy equaliser against Wimbledon at home, which then went to a replay, which went to a penalty shootout um, after a 120th minute equaliser from Wickham. The shootout went on so long that both goalkeepers scored, which is always a pleasant thing to see. And then there was the quarter final at Leicester. Uh, and Leicester were, I think they were fourth or fifth at that point, and flying really high under Peter Taylor. And Wickham, via the fairly unknown to even Wickham fans figure of Roy Essendo. Uh, 1-2-1 and knock them out. It is! It's Isando! The player who's only on a week-to-week contract. And uh, and got to face Liverpool at Villa Park in the semi-finals. And, and even then, lost 2-1, but you know, won outclassed. In fact, it was 0-0 with about 20 minutes to go and Liverpool were able to bring on, I think they brought on Fowler, Heskey and Gerrard as their three subs. So it was a bit like, all right, Fair enough. We had Guy Whittingham to bring on. so, um, But yeah, obviously a very memorable uh, moment. And the, a much more pleasant semi-final, I think, than the other one, where Glenn Hoddle had just been appointed Tottenham boss and they lost to Arsenal. Um, and he completed the rare double of uh, being knocked out of the FA Cup twice in the same season as a manager. So uh, with Southampton and then with Spurs. So. The apparently apocryphal tale is that uh, Wicker manager Laurie Sanchez was out of fit non-cup tied strikers and so placed an advert on teletext which seems an extraordinary 90s thing to do in the 2000s um, and Essendo's agent responded and he was signed up and promptly scored the winner Duncan is that true not really no I mean I think Laurie Sanchez <laughs> was it said in his... <laughs> <laughs> it was on bamboozle who put it out on that but um <laughs> No, it was just it was a standard press conference where he said, "I've got no strikers. I'm I'm desperate for a striker." That obviously was then reported by the local media on Teletext, which Roy Sando's agent then saw. So it kind of is true, but it's not like Wickham were like, "Let's just use Teletext as a transfer uh, policy." And also, Roy Sando, hats off for the goal at Leicester, but he he wasn't very good and he apparently the the tale goes after the Leicester game he was already dressed and showered after the rest of the players got back to the dressing room and was asking for like a two or three year contract and uh, he had some other chances in league games for the rest of that season he just yeah wasn't very impressive well after their semi-final with uh, the incredible Wickham Wanderers the final must have been a breeze although Arsenal did give Liverpool a bit of a scare Freddie Lundberg's opener unanswered until the last 10 minutes when Michael Owen popped up with a brace to turn the final on its head. Owen, stretching his legs and getting away from Dixon and getting his shot away, I say, that is just absolutely fantastic. He has won the cup for Liverpool all by himself. What else happened then in 2000-2001? Well, speaking of, 
remarkable doubles. Earlier on in the season, Patrick Vieira became the only player in Premier League history to be sent off in both of the first two games of a Premier League season. How is that possible? Well, back in those days, suspensions didn't kick in for uh, 10 days. Um, So you could get sent off and then be available for the next fixture. I think the the shortest gap uh, is three days. I think Vieira might have done that. And I think Eric Cantona did two in four days as well. So, you know, something to aim for in the 90s and early 2000s. Sadly, ruled out by bureaucrats now with their immediate suspensions. Lots of other things going on too. Paolo Di Canio catching the ball when goalkeeper Paul Gerrard was injured. Charlton, a little bit overshadowed by Ipswich, but still finishing ninth and the highest finish since the 1950s with South African Sean Bartler winning goal of the season for this against Leicester. It's often said that attack's the best form of defence. Alan Kirby wants to be controlled attack. We'd love a finish to it. And he's got it! Bartlett. Chelsea bringing in Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank from Atletico Madrid. He would win Golden Boot. Chelsea firing Gianluca Vialli just five games into the season and bringing in Claudio Ranieri. There were loads of managerial changes. Martin O'Neill was the first one out, ditching Leicester for Celtic. Peter Taylor coming in there. Terry Venables joining Borough, kind of alongside Brian Robson. Harry Redknapp leaving West Ham under ill-defined circumstances. And, as mentioned Glenn Hoddle replacing George Graham at Spurs and Stuart Gray taking over from Glenn at Southampton. And speaking of Southampton, Bristol Saints says, has there been anything more poetic in all the Premier League years than Matt Letitia coming off the bench to score a spectacular winning goal against Arsenal that was also the last one at the Dells' 103-year history? Yes, this was the season Southampton said goodbye to the Dell and who else should score the final goal there? than Latis. Just a minute to play. Plus stoppage time. Here's Latissier! Who better to say farewell? Not enough positivity in the media about that goal, Latissier, in my opinion. Feeding negative stats out. Right. Uh, Matt Latissier, uh, now to be found opining on social media, on Radio Masks and Why Folk Don't Try Being More Optimistic About COVID-19 but in those days winding down as a Southampton legend hadn't scored a single goal all this season came on I think for the last 17 minutes of the last game ever at the Dell and scored a pretty special goal. Matt in the meantime what was that at uh, Stamford Bridge with Viali getting axed after a fine run as manager after just five games is it true that he'd fallen out with Gianfranco Zola? Yeah, amongst others, uh, Dan Petrescu, Frank LeBeouf, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, they they all came out and publicly criticised Viali either around the time of his dismissal or shortly afterwards. Uh, I don't think he'd particularly gotten on that well with Ken Bates either, which is um, another uh, another battle that you, you're not going to win. And, and Chelsea only won one of the first five games at the start of this season. Um, you mentioned James that that he'd done a he had an impressive record. Viali, I always think it's it's padded slightly. Five trophies that he won. One was the Community Shield, one was the Super Cup. Two of them have been teed up by Rude Hullett, who'd got Chelsea to the, the quarterfinals or later of the, the competitions that they went to win. So he did a great job as Chelsea manager, but not quite as uh, as legendary as maybe the um, the bare facts would have you believe. Just uh, on Hasselbank as Golden Boot winner, A, his goal at Old Trafford is probably one of the hardest shots ever hit in Premier League history. He's the last player to win the Golden Boot for a club outside the top five, which is 
quite interesting. Um, and he's the last outright winner to do it wearing the number nine shirt. So if you like kind of old-fashioned striking uh, omens, there are a couple of good ones there. That's a terrific cross. flow. Just uh, turning it back. Hasselback! Goal! As clean as a whistle! That goal at um, Old Trafford, which I'm, I can't call a volley, although looks like one in orbit, the fact that the ball bounced, is probably my favourite Premier League goal, I think. Uh, it's an absolutely remarkable finish in that he never has a man not tried to hit it hard or not hit it with much backlift and yet still managed to kick a ball 100 miles an hour like Jimmy Floyd. It, it's an absolutely sensational finish, it really is. I, I love the way he celebrates. He runs over to the Chelsea fans and he lifts his shirt up and you think there's going to be some message. It's just an umbro underlayer. So, again, you know, man <laughs> of the people. As for the relegation battle that season, it was a tale of three cities, Manchester, Bradford and Coventry. The three of them finishing well off the rest of the pack. Coventry, who had previously escaped relegation ten times on the final day of the season, but not this time. John Paul Upton says, I'd like to pour one out for my beloved Coventry City. After years of Houdini escape acts, we finally ran out of luck and so started our decline. Bradford also tumbling down. Bristol Saint is back again saying, has anyone made a more promising debut than Stan Collymore with his spectacular overhead kick for Bradford City and then failed to deliver more miserably by being sold to Real Oviedo after only seven appearances? Uh, Philip Iderson also talking about uh, the Bantams. Uh, Benito Carboni, Dan Petrescu and Stan Collymore rocking up amid what the chairman later called six weeks of madness that is still impacting the club 20 years later. It was kind of Leeds-esque. Well, it was. you can argue that Bradford staying up the previous season on the last day was the most you know, ill-fated survival ever because they then went out and just... I mean, you've never seen a club spend more ridiculously and recklessly on a load of just journeyman pros. And they just... Yeah, they, they tumbled all the way down to the fourth tier and, you know, obviously... Carl Boney the, wasn't a journeyman. He was, and I mean, he went down. Didn't he go down with three clubs in the Premier League, like Bradford, Sheffield Wednesday, and Derby? I think. But in fact, this season actually, I think it's the first time you can start to see journeyman foreign players in the Premier League. You've got Carboni, uh, King Cladsey's at Derby. Obviously, we mentioned how it took the Premier League a few seasons to kind of get going with spending power and bringing in foreign players. But by this point, I think you know everyone had everyone had got the hint and was probably going a bit too too much the other way. That Bradford period of, of recruitment is astonishing. They they played a game in that season where the average age of the starting lineup was 31.4, which is one of the oldest in Premier League history. And it had uh, it had a strike force of Peter Beagree at 34 and Dean Saunders at 36 with Stuart McCall at 36 in behind them. Um, two of those got substituted and one of them got sent off. And you just think it's almost as if they looked at the way to succeed in the Premier League and thought, well, maybe everyone else has missed something. Maybe you need to get really, really old players and kind of seri- early 90s Serie A our way through. And yeah, it didn't work. Uh, yeah, Daniel mentioned uh, Stuart McCall, who was caretaker manager for Bradford for all of two games in this season um, before quitting, saying there was too much work to do. Fast forward to 2020, and he is currently on his third spell as permanent Bradford boss trying to get them out of League Two. Yeah, I mean, if Bradford felt inevitable, it was a, it was sadder to see Coventry finally go down. I think, 
you know, Coventry surviving was a sort of tradition in England by this point, and everyone kind of, you know, you knew summer was on its way when Coventry kind of escaped. And I mean, people know this stat, I think, but they haven't finished in the top five of any division since 1967. Um, and as it stands I in League that, One, I thought they changed that in 2018, didn't they? They came sixth and, and went up. Ah, oh, you see, I had it as top six. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still still alive for top five, and that was due to change this season, except. Well, they're miles clear in League One and, you know, then COVID. So, poor Coventry. That is unfortunate. Coventry. No, it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Leeds didn't get relegated in this Premier League season, but in a sense they did, not finishing in the Champions League positions. They'd gone for broke and they soon got it. They did have their moments in this campaign, that full three over Liverpool and reaching the semi-finals of the Champions League, but the £40 they'd spent along the way ended up having a catastrophic effect on their fortunes, as we all know. Darren Lethealy, though, asked, what would have happened if Leeds had finished third and not fourth? Or if modern Champions League qualification had applied? Don't know. This isn't flip reverse. Move on. <laughs> would, it, would it have delayed the inevitable? Well, they carried on spending, didn't they, the following season? They bought Fowler from Liverpool. Um, so you would think it would have absorbed that, you know, spending a bit more. So maybe they'd have been OK. But... I think obviously selling Rio Ferdinand to Manchester United left a left a big hole, and I mean they're always going to fall back a bit. But I mean no, I don't think anyone expected them to to just disappear like they did. Yeah, the other problem they had is that you know Manchester United finished third the next season, having been brilliant in this season. So um, it would have been a tough ask for them to keep pace, I think, and, and qualify for the Champions League. The, the the reality was is that they were only in those positions because of their spending, and as soon as they couldn't do that anymore, they fell far below where they would have been without the spending. Just one thing from this season. I think this is the last time it's happened, but Tony Cotty played in every division in this, this season. So he played in the Premier League and then all three tiers of the Football League, which is pretty hard to do. Um, he played how, for... How did he manage that? We started at Leicester, then he moved to Norwich, then he became... I think he became player-manager of Barnet for a bit in the, in the bottom tier and got sacked and then pitched up at Millwall in, in League One for a few games. So, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to repeat that for a long time. Remarkable. And that is the 2000-2001 campaign. And that brings us pretty much to the end of today's Totally Football Show as well. On Thursday, we're going to be concluding for now... Our Champions League story with the little-known and underreported 2004-2005 campaign, the road to Istanbul. Sasha will be joining us for that. Have a good one, whatever it is that you're doing. And you too, listener. And we'll catch up with you Thursday for now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.